Strokeside Designs is a New York-based fine jewelry company focused on water sports. This is the best jewelry I have found through many years of searching. I love my Dragon Boat Paddle Heart earrings and my pendant. The jewelers at Strokeside Designs have worked for famous jewelry houses such as Tiffany & Company and Cartier. All of the pieces are hand-finished from fine materials. Express your passion for kayaking, canoeing, and dragon boating. Visit PaddleJewelry.com and get free shipping with the code PINK. That is PaddleJewelry.com and enter the code PINK. Are you a dragon boat athlete? Have you ever thought about joining a team? Hornet Water Sports makes high-performance, lightweight, carbon fiber dragon boat paddles. You can choose from one of their many graphic designs. Don't settle for just a boring black paddle. I love their design so much that I have four different paddles. They also have all of the dragon boat accessories that you need, paddle bags, tip covers, tape, and more. Visit their website at hornetwatersports.com and enter the code PINK at checkout to receive 10% off of your order. That's hornetwatersports.com and enter the code PINK. Thanks for listening in. On this episode, Melissa Eppard joined us on the podcast. She is from Kingston, New York. She was diagnosed with triple negative stage one grade three invasive ductal carcinoma at the age of 36. Melissa shares a little bit about her journey, but she also talks about the difficulties that young women experience when navigating through breast cancer screenings. She talks about having a breast surgeon call her on the phone to tell her she had cancer. And she also talked about having a plastic surgeon that was not supportive of her decision to explant. This is a great episode. Take a listen in. Welcome to Behind the Pink Ribbon, where we share stories, information, and other content related to breast cancer. My name is Melissa Adams. I am a 12-year genetic breast cancer survivor. I've learned so much through my own journey with breast cancer. I have met some amazing people along the way, many that have become lifelong friends. I have experienced the emotional roller coaster of a breast cancer diagnosis, heartache, anger, frustration, loneliness, and even gratitude. Through this podcast, we will speak to breast cancer survivors, supporters, and healthcare professionals to gain insight and understanding behind the pink ribbon. I'm here today with Melissa. She is uh, from Kingston, New York, and she is a breast cancer survivor. She was diagnosed in May of 2014 at the age of 36. She was diagnosed with stage one, uh, but it was a grade three. So uh, if I understand that correctly, it's pretty aggressive. Um, So we'll talk a little bit about that. But welcome to the show, Melissa. I'm glad to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me, Melissa. It's really nice to be here with you. Thank you. So let's talk a little bit about that initial diagnosis. So how did that happen for you? Um, You were only 36, so I don't know that you were necessarily getting mammograms, but if you were, maybe that's how that happened. So tell me a little bit about the start of your story. Well, the timing was terrible. I I mean, it's never good for anyone, but I um, was working at a wellness center. I was managing um, the center in Uh, Woodstock, New York. And my employer had just let go of our health insurance. So I was without insurance. It was actually the November of 2013. And my son um, was three years old at the time. And he was just kind of like babies do kind of scramble, scrambling over my chest, kicked me in my breast. And that's when I discovered the lump. I actually could feel it. It was quite painful. Um, Yeah. So in that moment, uh, I, I was just in denial, I thought, you know, um, maybe it was related to the um, dental work I just had done. Maybe it was a swollen lymph node. Like I, at that point in my life, you know, I had been doing 
everything right. You hear this from a lot of women. Like I, I was eating organic. I knew about the mind-body connection. I practiced yoga. I went to the gym. I was doing all the right things. So in my mind, there was no way this could be cancer. And, um, you know, thank goodness for the Affordable Care Act. Like <laughs> it was the perfect timing. It was like that was just open to the public. And I, and I had to go through that big albatross of a website trying to oh, get yes. myself enrolled in Obamacare. And, um, so yeah, so from November to May, I, I was just left wondering like what's going on in my body and trying to get doctors lined up. And, uh, you know, finally in the spring I got into, um, to see a breast surgeon and had a biopsy and turned out it was breast cancer. It was a triple negative, um, cancer. Yeah. So, so I'm going to back up just a tad there because, you know, you talked about this wellness center that you worked at and they had just dropped the insurance. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So how does, how does an organization do that? I mean, was it just that the number of people that worked there was small enough that they were able to do that? Or, I mean, I don't understand how they just up and It was a small Okay. Yeah, I know, right? It was a small office. Um, the law is if it's under five, you don't have to provide health insurance for your employees. And he, this doctor, was um, starting to transition out of his practice. Um, so he was winding things down and, you know, cutting back on staff. So I was actually the last employee um, working with him. So that's how that happened. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah, I but mean, also being it was like a wellness center working with this holistic. He was a chiropractor to law holistic medicine um, modalities, and I, you know, I immediately I went to like my homeopathic medicines and what I knew, and like let's work on lymphatic drainage and massage, and you know that wasn't going to cure my cancer, right? Unfortunately, yeah, yeah. So I mean, really, like what a genuinely scary thing to have to do in terms of, you know. I just lost my insurance and now I have this lump that I found that I'm not yeah. really quite sure what it is, but not really on board with it being cancer. Um, but still, you know, I hear so much backlash in terms of the Affordable Care Act. Um, <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, but you were a situation where that really benefited you in this. I felt like the poster girl for, for the Affordable Care Act. Like anywhere I could, I would speak up in, in favor of it and let people know, like, no, this isn't people just, you know, whatever your beliefs are, like mooching off the system. This is like truly a safety net for people who need who need it. And and now, you know, in my um, I'm a self-employed person with my own business. Like people like us, we need an option to purchase health insurance. So right. I'm really grateful for that. And yeah. I hope that the, the protections for people with um, pre-existing conditions, that's really important to me that we can still access health insurance. Absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. So, mm-hmm. you know, and people who, you know, we'll talk a little bit about this um, in a moment because I do have some um, questions for you. But, you know, people who are diagnosed with cancer, there's that layer of a pre-existing condition. And then you have the secondary layer for anybody who has a BRCA mutation or any other type of mutation connected to cancer. Um, right. You know, that's that's something that is completely different than just having a, a blanketed diagnosis of cancer, if you will. Um, yeah. So I don't want to dive bef- too deep into that, but yeah, it's scary. Yeah. And I, and I could, and I just want to share too, because this is definitely a big piece of my story. Like, 
I had this just awful trifecta of news right around the time of my diagnosis. So it wasn't just the breast cancer, but we had also just found out that my son, he um, was on the autism spectrums. We had that confirmed. That was just really stressful. And then my mother-in-law was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's and she was our primary caregiver when I went to work. So boy, those three things all together, um, what a year 2014 was. Yeah. I mean, really kind of created a perfect storm. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you talked a little bit about, so, you know, in November, this kind of happened and then, Mm -hmm. you know, so it was, was it really the insurance that kind of had to, you know, kind of solidify or come into place or were you still just kind of waiting? I mean, because from November to May, that's, you know, we're looking at six months there. Um, So what was, what was kind of the hang up with that? Well, I had to get approved. I had to get into the system and that took, honestly, it took a while for all, you know, inputting all that, that data for it to turn around and to get me an approval. And then I had to find doctors who accepted my insurance and then calling the doctors, you know, often there's a long wait list to, to get in as a new patient. So, I mean, obviously I would have loved to have gotten in there in December or January. It just, um, no matter how hard I pushed and tried, it wasn't, it wasn't happening. Okay. Um, Yes, there was a little piece of me that was in denial, like, you know, November, December, like kind of uh, like hoping this was something else um, as I just waited for the for the insurance to come through. Um, but, you know, no amount of massage or, or vitamins, you know, supplements were, were going to, nothing was shifting as far as my health went. Right. And I had, you know, also had this um, chest infection, like this upper respiratory thing that just lingered and lingered in a way I'd never experienced before. So I knew something was really compromised with my immune system and my health. Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, obviously working in the wellness industry, (laughs) you know, that kind of lends itself a little bit more to, I think, being mindful of what's going on in your body compared to maybe some people who are not in that industry. But, you know, I'm glad that you were at least listening to your body and still picking up on the cues that maybe something wasn't quite right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so you go in and you get this diagnosis and I had shared, um, you know, kind of at the beginning of the episode that it was a stage one, but it was a grade three. So, Mm -hmm. you know, what was the size of, you know, you talked about having a lump. So what was the size of the lump? Some, I, I don't remember the exact centimeter measurement, but it was about the size of an, a nickel. Okay. Um, it was, you know, very palpable and it was right near the nipple and it was um, an invasive ductal carcinoma. So, you you know, when when I had my diagnosis and they, they looked at my family history, um, you know, I, I told her about my grandmother who had died of breast cancer before I was born. And so, of course, that, you know, meant I should get some genetic testing done. And lo and behold, you know, two weeks later, I found out that I had the BRCA1 gene mutation. And, um, you know, because of my diagnosis, my mom and my sister were tested. My sister was negative, which I was grateful for. She's got a couple daughters. Um, And my mom, obviously, my mom is a carrier. and She was able to have a prophylactic double mastectomy. Okay. Um, hopefully, hopefully sparing her of ever getting cancer. Right. Um, so up to this point, nobody else in the family had ever 
like when you were talking to your doctors, I'm sure that when you went to the gynecologist and, you know, they ask about family history and are there, you know, is there anything or anybody in the family, either paternal side or maternal side that has had breast cancer or ovarian cancer or anything like that? Nobody was concerned at that point in time. Um, you know, they did know about my history, um, but not, but not, not in advance. Like, are you talking about like a, like a general practitioner, like my regular doctor? Yeah, your regular doctor or even gynecologist. Yeah, nobody ever asked. And, and it's funny, when I was like hit, hit 30, I remember asking like, well, when should I begin, you know, getting mammograms? And like, oh, you're too young. And even when I went and presented with this lump, it was like, oh, it's probably nothing. You're too young, even with my family history, which is surprising, right? You would yes. think they're a little bit more of a red flag. Like, let's let's see what this is. Um, you know, she did refer me to see the breast surgeon where I ended up getting the biopsy. But it was still very much like, I think she was trying to be really, like, assuring to me, maybe. Yeah. But by then, <laughs> I had had this lump in my breast for, like, months. I was not being assured at all. Yeah. And it wasn't um, going away. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Yeah. And I, I had that kind of same experience where, you know, I, I feel like the doctor that I went to see who was not my regular doctor, he just happened to be available um, when my doctor wasn't. But, you know, he just kept saying to me, oh, you know, you're too young. Your paternal grandmother is too distant. You know, I'm sure you have nothing to worry about, but I'll send you anyways. Mm -hmm. um, and he was convinced completely convinced that it was not going to be cancer. And well. it's, it does a real disservice to women. It's it like I, I, maybe they're trying to make themselves more comfortable and to get you out of the office. Like I don't really know what the value is, but I, I hear more often than not women, um, you know, they do end up with a diagnosis. It wasn't nothing, you know? Right. And, and I think, I don't, I feel like the term gaslighting is a little too strong, but there is this, thing of people and I think in particular women of just kind of minimizing and dismissing their symptoms and and we really I, I want to advocate for all women to really get it checked out like know for sure have some science on your side don't don't just like brush it under the covers because you know honestly what my shared with me about my grandmother she did that she you know and I think maybe it was part of the era that she lived into didn't really talk, women didn't really talk about, um, you know, didn't disclose their private suffering as openly yeah. as we do now with <laughs> social media. But um, she, you know, she didn't go to the doctor for a long time. She was nothing. She didn't want to deal with it and face it. And so by the time she did get to the doctor, it was cancer and it was metastatic. And, you know, wow. maybe she could have gotten help sooner and, and lived a longer life. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I feel like there are, I feel like there are so many parts to this, right? Like, you know, generally as women, one, I think m most women, especially as moms, I would imagine I'm not a mom, but I would imagine that, you know, you're so involved in taking care of everybody else that there is that kind of tendency to let go of what your needs are at times. Um, and even as not being a mom, I find that I do that for different things. Like, you know, my husband, I would take care of his needs first or the cats <laughs> um, or, you know, my work or things like that. So I, I think there's that general tendency. Yeah. But at the same time, I also feel like there is so much misinformation and, you know, especially when it comes to people who are 
the first contact, whether that's a general practitioner or a gynecologist, you know, there's too much misinformation in terms of telling women you're too young because, you know, we've had Metaviver on the podcast. Mm-hmm, and absolutely. Yeah. Metaviver has talked about, you know, we have a 16 and 17 year olds who are diagnosed with cancer, breast cancer. So no, you know, it's not, nobody's mm-hmm. too young. And I remember asking somebody in Pittsburgh, I was doing a, a research project and I asked the question, I called up an organization and I said, what was the youngest age of somebody diagnosed in this area? And I was told 13. So I can't even imagine what that 13 year old must have gone through. Mm. Oh my goodness. In terms of going to the doctor and saying, you know, I found a lump or I feel this symptom or I feel that symptom and being told, no, you're too young. And then ultimately having a diagnosis. So um, we kind of, it makes me wonder about who, who wrote these, uh, Oops, sorry. No, you're good. Go ahead. Are you still there? Yes. Okay. I, I, I was thinking about how, um, you know, who wrote these standards of care for women? Um, you know, like who says that you don't get, a, you know, a mammogram until you're 40 or 45? Um, and how outdated is that? Like maybe we really need to reassess that as, as um, you know, the data has shifted and showing more and more women are getting cancer at a younger age. Um and maybe we can do better than mammography, right? If that causes right. um, potential risks for women, like maybe having, you know, making thermography more accessible for younger women. I don't know, but there has to be, um, you're, you're right, like the, the education and training conversations with doctors that are, that are going through medical school, they need to have more current data. Yes. Know to draw from. Yeah, and you know when I was when I was diagnosed, I was thirty one, and you know when I looked at the statistics wow. back then, it was you know about eleven thousand women diagnosed under the age of forty each year. And when I mm-hmm. went back to look at that statistic, hoping obviously that it would go down, it hasn't. It has in fact increased. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think we do have to start having conversations about, you know, 40 is not too young to get breast cancer, you know, and 40 is yeah. not necessarily the age of when mammographies should start happening or screenings, whatever that might look like. Um, because 12,000 women, I mean, that's maybe not the largest portion of breast cancer diagnoses, but that's still a big number. And, and why, why, why do we get these pockets of, of, you know, regions where there's like a a huge number of of people getting diagnosed with breast cancer? You know, what's the correlation? Like we have to look at that. My, my breast surgeon, um, the first, I actually saw a couple breast surgeons, but the first person who, gave me the diagnosis, said that this area of Kingston, New York, there's actually um, like a pocket of, of a, a lot of breast cancer in this area. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's like the Dutch, she's like, maybe it's the Dutch ancestry, but I also wonder about, um, you know, the pollution of the Hudson River. We had um, absolutely you no know, gen- the general electric fact, you know, factory up the river, mm-hmm. or is it like IBM plant? Like, I don't, I don't know. I don't, you know, want to. Right. I can't really speculate, but definitely what's happening in, in our environment, like the, the toxins or what's happening to our food supply, you know, um, pesticides like or, you know, um, 
what we're doing with, with dairy and hormones. It's so. Yeah. It all has all impacts on our body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So, um, so I want to kind of go back to you <laughs> a mm-hmm. little bit. And um, so you had talked about, your, so your, your BRCA1 positive, you were triple negative um, or the cancer was triple negative. Um, so what did you opt for in terms of treatment? So what did that look like for you? So I first saw a breast surgeon, um, you know, the first person who diagnosed me, um, I ended up not working with her because she called me over the phone and gave me my diagnosis. And I was like 45 minutes away from my family. And, oh yeah. Um, it was really, no, no, like, no, no, no. Very difficult ride home. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't, I didn't think that was a good decision. I was very kind of matter of fact, like, yeah, you've got <laughs> wow. triple negative breast cancer. No big deal. Um, <laughs> So I ended up going to getting, I got a second opinion down at Sloan Kettering and um, I really wanted to, in my mind at the time, like I just really wanted to keep my nipples. That was really important to me. And it was not recommended because I had um, invasive ductal carcinoma and the, the ducts all lined up there at the nipples and right. with the triple negative with the BRCA gene. It's like, if you're going to have a, a double mastectomy was what was recommended. Um so that I could reduce my risk. I had an 87% chance of getting breast cancer again, and usually it's in the contralateral breast. So take them both. That was the recommendation. Um, I came back up here. I saw another breast surgeon. Same thing. Remove both breasts. Remove the nipples. Um, after that, you know, I was recommended to see a plastic surgeon. And... Um, this is where the story gets interesting. Um, at the time, you know, you have to make a really, a lot of hard and fast decisions. Yes. Um, the plastic surgeon that I saw came really highly recommended and, you know, he was, um, the approach at the time was very kind of paternalistic. Like if you were my daughter, this is what I would recommend. Like kind of, he was taking me under his wing and looking out for me. That's how it felt. Um, he, he said because of my age and my skin was supple and like he said direct to implant we're gonna go underneath the pectoral muscles we're gonna put the implants in and that will make sure you that will ensure that you don't have capsular contracture it'll look better you know what did I know um I had seen a uh I had also seen another plastic surgeon who who did deep flap and he said I didn't have enough tissue to do that so I I weighed you know I was a little lighter then so I, you know, it was recommended that I have this double mastectomy with immediate reconstruction. And, and at the time in 2014, um, I wasn't really aware of women. Like I wasn't seeing women go, going directly flat. Like it's, it's no. a much um, more available image now. There's, yes. there's a lot of like groups advocating for it and normalizing it. Um, so that's, so the, the, Timeline of events was um, in July. I had my double mastectomy with immediate reconstruction, and then, like within two weeks after that, I had to like cram in an IVF treatment. That was also recommended because my son was only three, and what if I wanted to have more children? So that was like an hour long ride back and forth to the IVF specialist, like with these fresh incisions. Um, that was pretty intense. I would and imagine. Then, uh, 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've um, never been through IVF, but you know, just the, the friends that I've had go through it. I just can't even two weeks later. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's intense. So, it was like har- harvest, harvest those eggs as soon as you can. And then maybe two weeks after that, I started chemotherapy. Um, and the chemo, it was pretty, it was pretty intense because it was a triple negative um, cancer. I had a total of 16 rounds of treatments. You know, um, I had to get an, a port installed and it took a total of five months to do that. So, yeah, that's a, I mean, 16 is a lot. Um, but I also recognize that, you know, trickle, triple negative breast cancer is kind of its own, you know, beast, if you will, because yeah. I know that really chemo is the only option. It's the only viable right. option. Um, so I would imagine that they are pretty aggressive in terms of chemotherapy for anyone that is triple negative. Yeah, it was it was in really really intense to start that. I I, I resisted it. Um, you know, my background working in like a holistic wellness center it was this idea of just more a pure approach and holistic approach to the body. So to just open up my veins to you know this onslaught of chemicals, it felt like a chemical tsunami. Um, it, it was intense. I that first treatment. I remember going home that night, and I could like feel it working its way through my body. And like the image that came up was a like um, uh, like the Hulk. You know, I was like transforming. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was going through. I feel it like going into all my organs. It was really intense. Um, I lost all my hair, my eyebrows, my eyelashes. It was, um, you know, sort of lose. Just I just kept losing parts of my femininity and my identity. Um, yeah, boy, it's taking me back talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sometimes it's, you know, even, even, you know, coming up on six years out, right? Like it's still hard to sometimes go back to that place. Um, you know, even though we've, we've kind of distanced ourselves from it. Um, yeah, it's kind of, it's hard to, to revisit that sometimes. So, you know, I appreciate you, you know, being kind of real and raw about, um, you know, kind of what you're feeling right now. Like the other big piece of loss for me around that time was, you know, I, obviously my, my job working at this wellness center was coming to an end and I had decided that I was going to throw myself full into becoming a life coach. Like I did this um, introductory weekend in New York City with uh, CTI through a wonderful coach training program. And I loved it. I had this moment of just the clouds parting and I was like, these are my people. This is what I'm meant to be doing. Like, this is my life's work. Like, I just, it was so resonant for me. Exactly three weeks later is when I got my diagnosis. Oh. And so, yeah, it was like the axe came down. I had to like stop everything and just shift gears and, um, but you went you back know, to it. I did. I did. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you did go back to it. So, you know, it, like, it stalled for a moment. Yes. But then you went back. The cool thing was, like, I, I don't know if you got this from my website, but I, I'm, I write as well. And writing was a huge life support for me. Like, like it was a buoy. It really ferried me through the other side of treatment. Like, I was, you know, healing from the surgery and immune compromised during chemo and, you know, isolated from the world. Like, and I, I was able to still, um, 
connect with people and share my story. And even people who never had a cancer diagnosis um, or didn't have any, any, lose anyone close to them due to cancer, I, I was getting emails from people who were um, felt touched by my writing and felt like it impacted their lives. So at first it started out just simply like I want to disseminate this information without having to repeat myself oh, over and yes. over. And it <laughs> was just my circle of family and friends, but it started to grow and my readership um, just picked up and I started sharing on social media and I was amazed at the support and how much it meant to people. And, and it just helped me to feel like I still had uh, a, I didn't put it in coaching terms at all at the time, but I still had a purpose. Yeah, kind you know? of a place. Because it's really easy to feel like you are all alone, even though you might be surrounded by people in this. It yeah. is really easy to feel like everybody else is going on with their life. And here I am kind of at this standstill, hanging in the balance, not knowing which way things are going to go. And not really, yeah, and not really knowing, like, where do I fit in right now? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, so I I can definitely understand where you were coming from and and trying to feel, still having that way to connect to people. Um, So just in case you get this as like as a woman in your you know early 30s right all your friends are having babies and getting promotions (laughs) and buying houses and planning vacations yes you're you're just like my god like how like I lost my eyebrows today (laughs) yeah that's that's the headline for you right (laughs) you're like well my boobs are gone so there's that um but congrats on on your house (laughs) (laughs) you know it's yeah and it's a hard balance I mean it really is kind of hard you know you don't want to ever rain on anybody's parade like I certainly did not want to do that and I wanted to celebrate the successes but I will tell you that for some parts of my recovery um, the whole baby thing was one of the things that I struggled with the most Mm -hmm. because having the BRCA2 mutation I knew for me personally that that meant that I wouldn't have kids and um, so it, it was a struggle for a long time and that's that I wasn't happy for my friends but you know it just it hurt and quite honestly, it still does. Um, yeah. You know, so I, yeah, I, I know exactly what you're referring to. Um, mm-hmm. So so maybe our listeners are interested in, you know, checking out some of your writing. Where would they go to check that out? So I, my blog is melissashealinghope.com. And that, you can actually go back to the beginning. All of my posts are there. Um, you know chronicles from from like pretty much the moment of my diagnosis to today so yeah um I think the piece that I really missed out of sharing on my my conversation with you is like catching you up surgically where I'm at okay um sorry to jump around here that's okay but, but yeah so I have my blog there and then I have my coaching work is melissaeppardcoaching.com and there's a blog there as well and that's a little bit more of a uh, a coachy um, type blog. It's it's more specific to coaching tools and um, transformation. And so really, what like I want to do with both my blog and my my coaching work is encourage clarity, courage, and resiliency for all people in times of stress and transition. And yeah. then more recently, what I'm really like turned on around, like I really feel so um, connected to the, the flat community. Um, I started having issues 
issues with my implants last year. And they were just, you know, I had capsular contracture right from the beginning. They just never settled down, even though I lifted I was, up my pectoral muscles, right? But I was uh, going to say, didn't the plastic surgeon tell you that it would yes. <laughs> prevent? You know, and his, his, I went back to that same surgeon when I first started being really uncomfortable. It was keeping me up at night. Like I could feel the searing pain, some poking me. And I felt around and I'm like, is that another lump? What is that? I, he ordered an MRI. It turned out it wasn't a lump, but it looked like my, my implant had ruptured. Oh, wow. Lo and behold, I'm going to, I'm going to give the reveal. Like it, it wasn't ruptured. It was just the capsule was squeezing the implant so tight. It was making creases. Yeah. And I bet you that sucker would have popped. Like if I, if I kept it in any longer, I found a couple groups online on Facebook, um, healing breast implant illness by Nicole. I found another one called fierce flat forward. And I started befriending these women and, and feeling around like, what would it be like to be a flat woman to take these breast implants out? Yeah. I also read this long laundry list of breast implant illness symptoms. Although it's not, you know, formally recognized, nobody wants to admit that this is a real thing. <laughs> I saw all of these things that I had been suffering with, like chronic dry mouth and dry eyes, this weird like autoimmune rash on my hands that no medicine would fix. Wow. Um, brain fog, like I thought these were all like some of this was residual, you know, chemo brain fog, like five years later, like this is who I am now. But I'm so happy to say after getting those implants out, those symptoms went away and I am doing so much better. Good. Like my memory is a little compromised, but maybe that's just well, being 42 years old. <laughs> I <don't know> <laughs> and I would say, you know, 16 rounds of chemo that might potentially also <laughs> yeah. have part to do with it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm glad that you kind of talked a little bit about some of the symptoms because, you know, I think there are people out there who are suffering in certain ways and they can't find the answers. And, you know, if they're going to, um, a plastic surgeon and I won't name mine currently, and I'm sure he probably doesn't listen to this, so <laughs> I'd be safe anyways, but, um, he told me nobody is allergic to breast implants. Mm. And I was like, well, I guess I'll be finding a new doctor because I yeah. don't believe that. I believe that there is something. And I believe that, you know, we are putting a foreign body into, you know, this pocket of skin. And, mm -hmm. you know, at some point, like, you know, my implants at this point are about 10 years old. There's got to be some attachment that happens, right? Like there has to be something goes on inside of there. And I don't believe that nobody is, you know, allergic to breast implants or that breast implant illness is fake. You know, I don't believe that. I think that there are genuinely people who are struggling with that, but the or conversations that breast are should be for everyone. Like right. what about people with, I don't know if you've ever heard of the MTHFR gene mutation, yes. but people who have that, they can't detoxify as easily as everyone else. They right. can't have things with like, fortified folic acid they need to take like glutathione they need to help their detoxification pathways open up and so those people are going to have a lot harder time you know there are a lot of people suffering with with um autoimmune issues after getting it 
mysteriously get better after getting their implants out. So. Right, right. Yeah. Absolutely. And then the people who develop infections, like mm-hmm. you don't think that that's some kind of allergic reaction to your body? Like something's happening right. there. Like I, I've had people who, you know, they have the implants, they've, you know, gone through the, the surgery, they're, you know, healing up on the outside, but something's going on in the inside and they can feel it. And then they go in and they find that they have some type of infection. Something tells yeah. me that that's not just you know, it happens just randomly. That would suggest to me that there's some type of reaction that that person's body is having to those implants. You know, my surgeon, his answer to me was, uh, I was complaining of this pain in my right breast and my limited mobility. And his answer was, just use your left arm. <laughs> like, how, how is that even a solution? I'm a mom, I right? am right-handed, like I'm a human being. How, like, that's not acceptable. I I want to tell every woman that's listening to this, like, don't settle, don't accept, like, listen to your gut. If you feel like this person's not listening to you or respecting you, I mean, in hindsight, I I feel like I was tortured at this appointment. Don't ever go back to your original breast surgeon when you want to explant. You got to find somebody else because I'll tell you, this, it was like abusive what this guy did and said to me. I mean, I, I'm going in there with capsular contracture and he's pinching and pulling my skin every single time I tried to ask him about flat closure and could he do it and did he know how to perform a capsulectomy and, and block and it was it was brutal. Um, you know, I, I I just wanted to see could he do it? Is it possible to do it? And he turns and looks at my husband. You know, I had I had tattooed my chest two years after my mastectomy to take back that date in a really meaningful way. Yeah. He he, he looks at the tattoos. And he's like, "What am I supposed to do with these?" And he looks at my husband, waves his arms at me, and he's like, "How would you feel if somebody ripped up one of your songs?" Oh my gosh! I mean, like I'm hello, <laughs> I'm like, right um, here in front of you. Like this isn't this. It, what ego, right? Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. I'm sorry. This isn't your song. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, and I'm I'm more than just like an arm piece. I'm, right. You know, I'm an active woman and, and in hindsight. So if anybody's weighing out like, am I getting implants? Is this, should I go under the pectoral muscles? I wish, I so wish I had left my pectoral muscles alone. Like prior to all this, I had been studying, I'd been doing some MMA fighting and oh, wow. I loved it. And I, I can't do that. Like I couldn't no. take a hit to the chest with breast implants. Right. Um, you know, my upper body strength is compromised now, even yes. though I've gotten my implant out. It's like my, you know, I'm about four months out from my explant and my muscles are still repairing. Right. Being a physical therapist. And that's what they don't um, talk about. You know, like I, I understand that they're there to present options to you. And I hope that they're getting better at presenting all options because, Mm -hmm. you know, having the option of going flat was not even presented um, to me. But again, I, you know, this was back in 2007. So, you know, I know that times have changed. So I hope that things are getting better and those conversations are happening. But at the same time, you know, there's a lack of understanding with what really happens to our body and how things are truly compromised by the, the things that we end up having to go through to get yeah. rid of this cancer from our body. Um, and I think those conversations are just as important as making sure that all of the options are presented too. 
Absolutely. I feel strongly that flat needs to be on the menu and given yes. equal amount of time when you have a conversation and a consult with a plastic surgeon or, or a breast surgeon, both. Right. Um, I asked him point blank. I was like, why, why don't you offer um, staying flat as, as an option to women? And, you know, he just kind of like gave me this blank look like I'm a, I'm a plastic surgeon. I don't do that. I help people reconstruct. I was like, well, can you make me flat? And he said, oh, sure, I, I do that if people come in with gender dysmorphia. Like, I found, I found that extremely, like, offensive as well. Yeah. Um, so I want to say, yeah. like, anybody is looking for resources to explant or to go flat initially. Like, there's some great websites, like, like Flat Closure Now. Um, not, not putting, not on, putting a on a shirt is another great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I've had Kimball's um, on the podcast. Yeah, so. yeah. she's great. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's really, I mean, I feel like we've talked about so many different things. We've kind of bounced around here and there, (laughs) but it was a great conversation. I mean, I, I feel like that's sometimes just how conversations go. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, but there's so many pieces of this story. Yeah. Yeah, for Mm -hmm. sure. But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm genuinely very happy that, you know, at this point you have found you know, that being flat is, is what you needed, um, you know, for your overall health. And, um, you know, I love the fact that you're getting, you know, into that whole advocacy and, and, you know, I would imagine that you're going to help other people, um, obviously in terms of that. And, um, I think the voices are getting louder and there's more presence for it. So I, I'm sure that, you know, as you continue on, you'll continue to be involved in that, that piece of it. But, um, Sadly, yeah. our, our time has come to an end. We've uh, gone over a little bit, but it was a great conversation. Um, I think you added so much value to um, our listeners and, you know, just exactly what you said about, you know, if somebody is not respecting you, go somewhere else. I think yeah. that's an important message. So thank well, thanks you. so much for having me today, Melissa. This Absolutely. was really nice. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Pink Ribbon. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you or anyone you know would be interested in sharing your story, please send an email to podcast at behindthepinkribbon.com. Thinking about advertising on this podcast? Our ads not only create awareness for your brand, but also contribute to the continued growth and support of this show. Email us today and be on our next episode. Email podcast at BehindThePinkRibbon.com for more information. You've been listening to Behind the Pink Ribbon, produced by American Creative Consulting, mixed and mastered at Riverview Podcasting Studios. For more information, please visit designbyacc.com.